Turn with me to the book of Mark, the gospel according to Mark. And this will be our series for the next while. I'm afraid I I don't know how long. I haven't uh, broken it up into definite sections all the way through, but um, perhaps to the end of this year or into the next year, we'll see where the Lord leads us. So Mark beginning in chapter 1. When a famous person comes to town or to a movie premiere, what do the people do before them? They roll out the red carpet, don't they, to prepare for the coming of this famous person. What would you do if you were to build an acreage on some new land? Wouldn't you prepare it first? You would clear away some trees. You would perhaps turn up the dirt and build a a foundation somewhere to, to put a house. You would make a road so that you could get into the land. Well, this kind of preparation is what we see in Mark chapter 1. We see here the beginning of Mark's gospel is the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist. This he calls the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As we get into that, and and before we get into the substance of what we're going to see this morning, I want to start with some intro points to Mark. As we look at the first verse and just consider this book as a whole, what might we say about it in introduction? The first verse says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know we have four such books, Gospels, in the New Testament. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, what is a Gospel? Is it simply a a biography of Jesus Christ? Obviously, He is its subject. What we find as we study these books is they're not necessarily biographies as we would think of them. In fact, many details of Jesus' life, especially His upbringing, are left out. Here in Mark, Mark even begins when Jesus is about 30 years old with the ministry of John the Baptist. He says nothing about the birth of Christ. These aren't strictly speaking biographies about Jesus, but really they are theological accounts, and we know inspired scripture that these inspired writers wrote down their accounts given of Jesus Christ and his life his ministry, especially his passion, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. And they're written for a theological purpose, to evangelize to people and to disciple disciples of Jesus Christ. And what we know about this particular gospel is that it most probably was written by a man named Mark. Early witnesses attest to this that Peter Uh, recalled, Peter the Apostle recalled to this other disciple named John Mark, whom we read about in other passages of Scripture. He's in the book of Acts. He's in Colossians 4.10, Philemon, verse 24, 2 Timothy 4.11, 1 Peter 5.13. Peter was recounting his experience of Jesus Christ as an eyewitness to Mark, and Mark was writing this down. And we see that likely 
It was written from Rome in 1 Peter 5.13. It notes that Peter was with Mark in Rome, which they call Babylon. Now, Mark's gospel is distinct in some ways from the other gospels. <clears throat> it is one of these synoptic gospels, so largely it accords with Matthew and Luke. But it is distinct in that it's, it's very brief. It's quick-paced. You'll notice often the word immediately comes up. Everything happens immediately, immediately, immediately. It drives you along with intensity. There's less of the teaching of Jesus in this gospel and more of the doing of Jesus. There's an emphasis on Jesus as the suffering servant of Isaiah, as I'm sure we will see. But beginning to look at this first verse, again, Mark says this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And likely what he is saying there is what he's just, just about to write about is the beginning of this gospel story. He begins it with the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist. Now he calls this the gospel, the gospel. Well, what does gospel mean? Well, it's a word that we often use, but sometimes we don't think about its actual meaning. It means glad tidings or good news. That's what gospel means. In the Old Testament, it's used. And in Greek, and it, it means any good news, especially though military victories you would have in kingdoms. They would send out soldiers, send out an army in battle. And, and, and when the battle was won, a messenger would run back to the king and proclaim victory. And this was good news. That's often the context this word was used in. We see it especially in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah which again Mark pulls from often. We'll see more of this this morning. If you look for a moment at Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 7, this is a section where God is speaking to Israel about their coming redemption from exile and also this greater redemption that's coming through the suffering servant. You notice this is right before the last servant song of Isaiah, where we read of this one who, like a lamb, was led to the slaughter and he, he bore our transgressions. He was chastised for us that we might be healed, we might be forgiven. Just before that, in Isaiah 52, 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns, the voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice, together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. So Isaiah uses this term good news to speak of the proclamation of God's coming reign and redemption through even the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. Now also, that's the Old Testament context. But in the minds of the hearers of this gospel originally, they may have thought also about a sort of a political application of this truth of the gospel because this was also a term that was used by the emperor of that day when Octavian or 
Caesar Augustus was born, or rather later after he was born, they regarded his birth as good news, as glad tidings for the whole world. Because Caesar Augustus was the one to inaugurate this Roman Empire, which was venerated by the Romans. It was called the, uh, the imperial cult. They exalted <clears throat> their kings, their emperors, as if they were gods. This proclamation was made in, in 9 BC that says, The birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings, the word gospel, that have come through him. In that same proclamation, he's also called Savior. And often the, the Roman emperors would take upon them titles like Divius Filius, the son of God, a child of God. I think what Peter is trying to tell us then here is that Jesus is the real king, whose birth, whose ministry is indeed good news of God's redemption. He himself is the real Savior and the real God. He goes on to say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We know the name Jesus itself means Yahweh saves, the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament. He's the, the same God who's coming in Jesus Christ to save his people from their sins, as Matthew 1.21 says. That's what the name Jesus means, Yahweh saves. He's also called here the Christ, which is a title which means the anointed one. In the background of the Old Testament, there was this Messiah that was proclaimed, prophesied that would come. The Messiah, the, the anointed one, the anointed Davidic king who would reign over all nations. This is who Jesus is. He's that anointed king in the line of David. He's also called here the son of God which is also a messianic title. In Psalm 2, that messianic king, the anointed one, is called the Son of God. You are my son. Today I have begotten you, it says in verse 7. And furthermore, as we look into the New Testament, we realize that Jesus is the Son of God in a, in a holy, unique, and particular way. Being God from all eternity. Being God the Son, the only begotten of the Father. John 1 will tell us that he was in the beginning with God and he was God. This only begotten Son from the Father who comes as the perfect representation of his nature. Tabernacles among us. Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And so this first verse is so full of meaning. It means that the true God-man, the true Son of God and Savior was coming to bring about the reign and redemption of God. And he is the true King. And this is true good news that we must rejoice in. So that being said, we'll move into the body of these paragraphs here. What we see in this passage, again, is the preparatory ministry of John the Baptist. Mark begins with John preparing the way for the coming of Jesus Christ, this Son of God. Verse 2 to 6, we see John preparing for Christ. 
Mark says that even John's ministry was prophesied of in the Old Testament and then fulfilled in time. He points us back to the, the prophecy of Isaiah and Malachi. You notice the, the logic of uh, this, these verses here. Verse 2, it starts, as it is written, and he goes on. Verse 4, John appeared. As it is written, John appeared. As it was written in these places, there would be a messenger who would come. So John actually appeared in history. These were prophecies made hundreds of years before this time. And we should look at them. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, spoke of this messenger. It says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming says the Lord of hosts. Now further down in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 to 6, it speaks again of this messenger and calls him a new Elijah. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So Malachi is saying that one like Elijah, a prophet, a messenger is going to come so that the Lord himself can come afterward. And Isaiah accords with this. Just as a note in verse 2 there where it says it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Well, then he goes to quote Malachi. It's not a problem that they often did that. They would cite the bigger prophet and then include words from other prophets in them. This happens in Matthew as well with Jeremiah and Zechariah. But Isaiah also accords with this. It's the same idea there in Isaiah chapter 40. And in Isaiah chapter 40, we have to understand, this is the start of a a grand section in the book of Isaiah. Where God is comforting his people, he says in verse 1 to 2, that he's speaking tenderly to them that their iniquity is pardoned, that they're going to be forgiven by God. And he goes on to explain the servant of the Lord who's going to come and this suffering servant who dies amidst two criminals. But here in Isaiah 40, he's beginning this voice of comfort. And there are three voices here. The first voice in verse 3 to 5 is a voice in the wilderness. It says, a voice cries. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is speaking of preparing the way before the Lord's coming, that when a king went in procession in those days, there would be people who went before him and smoothed out the way, made made sure that there was a level path for the king to come in. And so God is saying, I'm coming. I'm coming in forgiveness and redemption, but the way before me must be leveled out. It must be prepared, valleys lifted up, 
mountains made low. Everything should be cleared in front of the king so that he can come in. And really, in the full context of Isaiah, what this is saying is that the obstacles between God and his people must be removed so that he can come in redemption and in his reign. We see that John fulfills this prophecy. John is the one who paved the way for the Lord to come. Even the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is inaugurating the reign and redemption of God. He fulfills this. We see in verse 4 that John appeared baptizing in the wilderness. Well, that voice was a voice in the wilderness, wasn't it? So John is fulfilling that. We see him preaching, proclaiming this baptism of repentance, preaching Jesus Christ. So he was this voice crying out, calling out as a herald, preaching the coming of the Lord. We see that he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. Luke chapter 1, we'll say it this way. I'll have you turn there for a moment. Luke 1, 16 to 17 says, this is a prophecy about John. It says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John the Baptist came as one in the spirit and power of Elijah. He came as a rough and persecuted prophet calling people back to God just as Elijah did back in the days of Israel. He confronted the idols of Israel, and, and told them to turn back and serve the true God. This is, this is what John also was called to do. We see, actually, in verse 6, that John even looked like Elijah. He was in the same outfit, not just in the spirit and power of Elijah, but in the fashion of Elijah. He wore a, a, a clothing of camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist. And if you look back at 2 Kings 1.8, that's exactly how Elijah was dressed. Zechariah 13.4 even seems to suggest that most prophets would wear a hairy cloak. That was kind of the standard outfit of prophets. And so when the people would have seen Elijah coming and preaching in this manner, crying out, that the Lord's way be prepared and even, even dressed as a prophet, they would have known this is the prophet spoken of in the Old Testament. At least they should have known that. But we see that he fulfills this prophecy specifically by his preparatory ministry. And so what, what did that consist of? We see in verse 4, John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Well, he was doing this thing we call baptism. So we can look back as Baptists. We know that we're the true denomination here because John was doing this from the beginning, right? No, well, we have brothers and sisters who don't see baptism quite like we do. But he was immersing people in water. This is what 
baptism is. He was in the Jordan River there. People would come to him. He would dunk them. He would submerge them in the water. And where did this come from? Often scholars actually debate, where, where did John the Baptist get the idea for this baptism of repentance? Where did he find this? We don't necessarily see this as a custom regularly in the Old Testament. But what we do see in the Old Testament is many ritual cleansings. Sometimes as priests would come into the temple, they would wash themselves in the laver. There were all kinds of cleansing rituals with water based on various kinds of uncleanness. But specifically, I think what we should recall in the Old Testament when we see John's baptism in the Jordan River is the story we find in 2 Kings chapter 5. The story of Naaman the Syrian, this commander of the Syrian army. He was a strong commander, yet he had leprosy. And he was looking all over for some place, some person perhaps that could heal him. Eventually that led him to Elisha, the prophet. This one who came in the spirit and power of Elijah, who followed Elijah. Then Elijah went up to heaven. Elisha continued that ministry of many miracles and wonders. And so Naaman comes to Elisha for healing, and he tells him to go and wash himself seven times in the Jordan. He thinks at first, oh, what? <laughs> I came all this way just to hear you to tell me that I should go and bathe myself in this river. Well, he goes. He goes to the river, and it says there he baptized himself seven times. The word there is to dip, and in the Greek translation, it is the word baptizo that is used here. And what happened to Naaman? Well, he was cleansed. He no longer had leprosy. He was healed. He was made clean. And so what are we to think of John's baptism then? In the same river, he he calls all of Israel to come and be dipped, to be immersed in this water. And it was a symbol of cleansing of the forgiveness that God would bring for their sins. John is saying, we all are spiritual lepers and we need to be made clean before God. So come, be baptized, repent, and be forgiven of your sins. And so this baptism points forward to the cleansing that Christ would bring. We see here that it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And what does that mean? Maybe that seems to us a a difficult phrase. Is it saying that we must work up so much repentance and and turn away from from all of our sins and, and never sin again, and then God will forgive us? Then God will cleanse us? Well, the, the phrase here is repentance to the forgiveness of sins. Ace, to or toward or into the forgiveness of sins. What, what is repentance? Repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby people are inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. That's what Thomas Watson says. In simpler terms, it's a change of mind. It's a change of mind and heart 
that leads to changes of emotion and behavior regarding sin. J.C. Ryle will say, repentance is a thorough change of a person's natural heart regarding the subject of sin. It is when God enables a person by his spirit to see their sin, to be convicted of sin, and to hate their sin and be ashamed of their sin, and then confess their sin to God. That's what repentance really is. And it leads to changes in behavior. As we'll see, John commands people to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But initially, it is really just recognizing who we are as sinners, what our condition is before a holy God, so that we can then receive the cure of God's forgiveness. Imagine a young man who uh, is in a busy city. He goes out onto the street and and he stops at a street corner and he's waiting for a streetcar to come so he can hop in and go somewhere else. But he stands beside a, a poor beggar at the corner of that street. And people are coming by, they're, they're giving the beggar money. The beggar is grateful for receiving what he really needs, what he's openly proclaiming he needs. He has a sign, he says, I need change, uh, I'm homeless, I don't have any money. <clears throat> he's proclaiming this. People are coming by, giving him what he needs. The young man also pities the, the poor beggar, gives him some change, gives him a loony. But then there's this businessman that comes by both of them, and he, he looks at the poor beggar first, and he, he gives him a loony. And then he looks at the young man, and he says, you look like you could really use this too. So he gives him a quarter. Now what did that young man feel? Well, he felt a little bit offended, off-put. Do, do I look like a, a poor beggar to you? I, I, I don't have a sign out here. I'm not homeless. Uh, do, do I look unkempt? I'm in my nice clothes. That's what the human condition is like. We can either be the poor beggar on the side of the road who knows his sinful, bankrupt position before God and who's willing to confess that, to call out to the Lord and say, I am a sinner, be merciful to me, I need your forgiveness. Or we can be that young man who thinks he doesn't need anything at all and go on in our pride, not receiving forgiveness. See, what John was saying there is that people needed to come to a point where they had a repentant heart before they could receive the remedy for their sins, before they could truly receive the forgiveness of Christ. We need to see, you all need to see, that forgiveness is really the greatest need of all humanity. Our greatest need is not political change. It's not freedom from the stresses of life. It's not even physical healing from our pains and chronic illnesses. Our greatest need is forgiveness so that we as sinners might be reconciled to the holy God with whom we have to do. Sin is the obstacle between God and his people. Remember in Isaiah, he was speaking of these mountains and hills 
that need to be made low, these valleys that needed to be filled in, the rough places that needed to be made smooth. And what Isaiah is really saying there is that all those obstacles are our sin before God. He will even say this later in his prophecy in Isaiah chapter 59. I'll have you turn there. It, it says this. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. What Isaiah is doing, he's exposing all of the sin, which really is the barrier. It, it's what separates us from God. And so, as John preached repentance, he was exposing the sins of the people. We see this in Luke chapter 3. There's not much detail of John's ministry here, but if we look at Luke, for instance, in chapter 3 of his gospel, it says that even Pharisees and Sadducees, many hypocrites were coming to him. Verse 7, it says, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Those who were smug, who thought they were right with God, who thought that they were holy just because they cleaned the outside of the cup. They were hypocrites. Inside they were still sinners, but they were presumptuous on God's grace, and they, they called themselves God's children. How often can people who even grow up in the church get that mindset? Self-righteousness. I'm a Christian. I, I've been baptized. I go to church. I'm not like the world. He says, no, don't, don't presume on your position because God's judgment is coming upon your sins as well. And bear fruit. Make sure that your life actually is being renewed in repentance. He goes on, he speaks to selfish crowds. He says in verse 10, And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. He called the people to give up their possessions and, and be generous and share with others. 
people who are tempted to be selfish and hoard everything to themselves. He spoke to tax collectors who were greedy in verse 12. He says, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. These tax collectors in their greed would often take more money than they actually were supposed to. Tells them, stop doing that. Repent. Then he speaks to corrupt soldiers in verse 14. He says, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. He called them to end their abusive behavior and have contentment, to put away their discontent and truly be satisfied in the Lord. So you see, this is, this is what John was doing. He was leveling out the, the high places, the mountains and hills of our pride and selfishness, the dark valleys of our lust and greed and anger, the rough terrain of our hard hearts that does not listen to God's word. This must be plowed over. This must be cleared away. This must be leveled because repentance makes a people prepared. It makes a highway so that then God can come. Jesus Christ can come in his grace and forgiveness and we can actually receive it. So we see many people here. God was working in them. They began to come to John. It says verse 5, all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him. And we're being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Confession was the evidence that they were repentant. They were coming and they, they knew their sin. They saw their sin. They saw the, these obstacles between them and God. And they were honestly, earnestly confessing these things so that they might seek the forgiveness of God in Christ. Now here we should also note for just a moment that John was a genuine prophet. That he was not a hypocrite. That he was not preaching one thing and then living another. He was living in accordance with his message. I, I think this is the point of verse 6. It says, John was clothed with camel hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And we go, yuck. Oh, eating locusts? What is this guy doing? Well, we see here John was preaching a message of self-denial, that these people had to deny themselves and, and repent of their sins and not be greedy, not be discontent with what they had. And so he says, so it says here that John was also a self-denying man. He was one who was content to live in the wilderness not to live in king's palaces, not to wear soft clothing, but he had this very modest lifestyle. He was wearing clothing that he could find around in his environment. He was eating the food that was found in the wilderness. Locusts were frequent in that region of the world. They were a poor man's food in a way. You could find them, they were in abundance. And so you could eat them. They actually are full of protein. You can actually order locusts 
uh, on the internet, I was looking into this, even locust protein mix you can get, protein bars, they're high in protein, so they're good. They were also holy food. It says in Leviticus that these insects you were actually allowed to eat according to the food laws of Israel. So this was a, a holy diet, protein-filled diet, but, but a modest diet, a self-denying diet. John the Baptist was a rough man with a rough message. He wasn't about his own self-seeking. He was humble. And what we see is he was humbly pointing people to Jesus Christ. In verses 7 to 8, we see John preaching Christ. John preaching Christ. People may have been tempted to exalt John, and indeed they were. It actually says in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse uh, 19 to 23, people were coming up to John, they were asking him who he was, if maybe even he was the Christ. It says, and this test is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And then further in John chapter 3, verse 30, as John sees Jesus coming upon the scene. Now, now Jesus' ministry has begun. It says that John really, at that point, was willing to just fade into the background. He says about Jesus that he must increase, but I must decrease. John was a humble preacher, exalting Christ, just like all good preachers do. And we see him preaching the Christ to come here in verse 7 to 8. It says, and he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit there's a few things John proclaims about Christ here, about the coming Lord. He speaks of Christ's power. Now, John's ministry was powerful. No one could deny that. Many people believed he was a true prophet. They could not deny his authority. Yet, John says, after me comes he who is mightier than I. We know that Jesus Christ is on another level. He is powerful. He is mighty. He even, as Isaiah 9, 6 prophesied, would be called mighty God because he is God in the flesh, the almighty one, the omnipotent God, the all-powerful God. And as we go throughout the book of Mark, we will see Jesus' power on full display, that Jesus has power over creation, over the wind and the waves, that he has power over all diseases and ailments to heal all kinds of people, that he had power over demons as he went about exercising and, and casting out this spiritual darkness, 
We even see that he has the power to defeat death as he raises others from the dead. And then after he dies for our sins, he raises himself from the dead. No mere man has such power. We also see, we will see in Mark chapter 2, that Jesus has power. He has authority, exousia, to forgive sins. Mark 2 verse 7, he's telling this young man, this paralytic, that his sins were forgiven. And in verse 7 it says, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes were arguing about him. Then it says also in verse 10 that Jesus said, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose and picked up his bed and went out before them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything Like this, this Jesus Christ is the one who is mighty to save. He's the one who has power and authority even to forgive our sins. And so John was preparing them for that. Repent, there's one coming who will forgive your sins. Even by his death upon the cross, this is how Christ accomplished redemption, that he might have that power to forgive sins. John pointed to Christ's power. He also pointed to Christ's supremacy, Christ's supreme worthiness, you might call this. He says, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John viewed himself as not even worthy to approach this coming one, this Lord. Now, to understand this, I was helped by William Hendrickson. He points out that there were two relationships in Israel. We have to understand here that of a rabbi and a disciple and a master and a slave. As rabbis went around teaching, they would have disciples following them. And and these disciples often would serve them in various ways. But it was below a disciple to stoop down and untie the sandals of their rabbi. They would never do that. The person who would do that was a slave with his master. When the master had been walking around and his feet and his sandals were dirty, he would come home, the slave would bend down, untie his sandals, take them off and wash them and and wash his feet. What John is saying here is that I'm not worthy to be a disciple of this one. I am not even worthy to be a slave of this one. So he points to the fact that Jesus Christ is of supreme worth. None of us are worthy to approach the Holy Son of God, much less to serve him, to untie his sandals, to carry them around, to come near him, to preach him, even to suffer for him. Acts chapter 5, the apostles said, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of the name of Christ. Friends, we are not worthy of this one. We're not worthy to serve him. Yet he allowed John to serve him. 
and he allows us as well. So John exalted Christ in his power and his supremacy. He also exalted Christ's baptism. John says here, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We see here that really John's baptism was inferior to what would come later, even different than Christian baptism. But he says, as, as even First Peter chapter 3 notes, that this baptism ritual doesn't have any power in, in and of itself to cleanse people of their sins, to do the renewing work that they need. John could dunk them in water. I can bring people to this tank behind me and, and baptize them. Really, that does nothing in and of itself. John's baptism was preparatory. It did not have inherent power to save, and rather it pointed forward to the real power to save, which would come through Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit as Christ accomplished his redeeming work upon the cross. Then he was raised from the dead. He ascended on high, and he sent his spirit at Pentecost, poured out mightily to do a renewing convicting, washing, forgiving work in the disciples. We read of the, the washing of the Spirit, this baptism of the Spirit in Titus chapter 3. It says there in, in Titus 3 verse 4, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Friends, this is what happens when a person comes to Jesus Christ in repentant, simple faith. Jesus pours out his spirit upon us. He washes us. He renews us. He makes us clean. He brings that forgiveness that we so desperately need because he bought it upon the cross. And then he brought it upon us in the work of the spirit. So friends, we must come to Jesus for this true cleansing. John the Baptist couldn't cleanse anyone. But Jesus Christ, this mighty one, this one to come, this worthy, worthy, worthy one could do the work of cleansing. They need it. So in conclusion, friends, if you're here, you've never considered perhaps your sin before God. You need to look at your heart. You need to understand that it is a wilderness of sin that it is sparsely populated, that it is full of crevices and rocks and hills and mountains, of valleys that need to be leveled out and filled in, you must come to Jesus Christ prepared by repentance, understanding, seeing your sin before the holy God, knowing that we all are sinners and we all stand before God condemned in our own works. Even our works themselves cannot save us. 
They are like filthy rags before this holy God. And so your mouth should be stopped knowing that you deserve eternal damnation because you have sinned against an eternal God with a countless multitude, a a mountain of sin. But you need to know that there is gospel. Friends, John's ministry was only preparatory. It prepared the way for the gospel, the good news that God has come in Jesus Christ, that he's brought his redeeming kingdom, that he is welcoming sinners into the kingdom of light. You can be transferred into it by simply coming to Jesus Christ in confession of your sins, calling upon his name, trusting in the work that he has done on your behalf. Friend, repent and believe in Christ and then be baptized as a symbol of that washing that has occurred. Friends, as Christians, those who are already in Jesus Christ, those who have been washed, those who have been forgiven, I would say from this passage that we need to continually come to God in this way. We need to continually be prepared by continual repentance. There's still lots of rocks and rough terrain, lots of crevices in my own life that need to be filled in. Friends, we need to come to God humbly, daily, in our daily life, in our church life. We come to God humbly, confessing our sins, confessing still our great need of forgiveness, of cleansing, of the work of Jesus Christ to continue in our lives. We need a mighty Savior because we are great sinners. We need to be called back. And even as we begin this series in the book of Mark, we're going to be fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ and on the glorious gospel of his grace. But if we're not prepared by repentance, we won't be enabled to see the amazing glory of Christ and his forgiveness at the cross. We must be prepared by repentance. And friends, also, I want to say that we need to pray. We need to pray for a revival. A revival in this kind of preaching that John had in the book of Mark. We need more preachers in the spirit and power of Elijah. Even in the spirit and power of John the Baptist. For too long, we've had so many pulpits where people are afraid to talk about sin, where people shudder to even speak the word repentance. Friends, but this is what we must preach. And so we must pray that there would be laborers raised up who would preach repentance, who would preach sin, who would preach the law, who would preach hell, And then preach the glorious gospel of God's grace to save sinners. Friends, that's what we need in our day more than anything else. We need hard preaching. As Ken often reminds me, this quote of John MacArthur, he says, Soft preaching produces hard hearts, and hard preaching produces soft hearts. We need some of these hard words of repentance, of calling out sin, 
in order to pave the way, to make us soft, to make us humble, that we would actually receive the gospel of God's grace. Something like that happened back in the 1700s. There was a man named Daniel Rollins who was a drunkard, a wicked, wicked man, yet he was a preacher in a pulpit. And he would take the pulpit every Sunday and, and preach a soft message. People would go home unchanged. At one point, God broke into his life and showed him that he was a sinner before an immensely holy God. And so he began to preach this message of judgment. He began to preach, and even other preachers in that day were likewise awakened. And they began to tell the people, we're all going to hell. But then Daniel Rowland's eyes were opened to the gospel, to the good news of God's grace. And he got up and he proclaimed the riches of forgiveness in Christ. And people were transformed. And the land was transformed. Oh, that we would have that kind of change, that kind of revival, a return to the word, a return to this old message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can stand before you boldly, forgiven, washed, cleansed, at joy and peace, knowing our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that though we were the least, the, the, the lost sinners, Lord, that, that we deserved your judgment, God, that you have opened up the fountain of, of your blood, Lord, that we can be redeemed, Lord, and you reign over us. Lord, we pray that that message would continue to go out, the gospel of Jesus Christ, Lord, Lord, that we would see it and savor it all the more as we go through the book of Mark and that, Lord, our, our city, our nation, around the world, people would hear this message. Lord, and you would raise up many who would go back to your word, who would reform the church, who would preach again repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, and you would change many for your glory, that Christ would be lifted up as he ought to be, so worthy. Lord, we pray in his name. Amen.